Hello and welcome to No Character Limit. My name is Robert Thurk, and today you're going to hear episode 15 of my book, Ultima Thule, Unraveling the Unknown. Now that we are 15 episodes into this series, you're probably wondering how much longer it is until we get to the end. I'm right there with you. What I can tell you is that in this episode, we're going to cover all of Chapter 8, which is called Climate Shaping Human Evolution. But Chapter 8 is special because it marks the midway point of my book, because there are a total of 16 chapters. So right now we're looking at roughly 30 episodes to make Ultimate Thule complete. And in this episode, I'm once again going to be talking about the Milankovitch Cycles. I know that over the course of at least the last four chapters, I have been weaving in and out of stories related to them, and I promise the rest of the book has a lot more to offer and we move away from the idea of climate. And even in the next chapter, I have another episode dedicated to exploration, this time of the Antarctic as opposed to the Arctic. It's a really fun chapter, and it doesn't talk about the Milankovitch cycles. But I really wanted to bring back the Milankovitch cycles again because I just am really fascinated with how they have done so much to shape not just the Earth, but us as humans. In my very first episode of content called The Forging of Humanity, I did a one-off episode on how humans were shaped by fire. And in a similar way, Milankovitch cycles have had their way in shaping us as well. And if I wasn't able to tell you all of the little stories where the Milankovitch cycles have played a subtle role, I feel like this episode would have been really hard to get the point across about their power. Ever since the beginning of this book, I have slowly been building us up to bigger places and farther distances in the past. In the very beginning of the book, I only stayed a few thousand years from present. But as we have continued to move through the book, we've also moved further back in time. And now we have gone back a whole eccentricity cycle, 100,000 years. Because of that, we have been able to look at a lot of different stories where the Milankovitch cycles have 
made an impact or have influenced the people living at all of these different times. For example, I've talked about the earliest human structures 100,000 years ago at Arkin 8, and how the L3 haplogroup that left Africa around 50 to 70,000 years ago were likely pushed out because of the Milankovitch cycles. I've talked about the people of Dolne Vestonice in Europe about 30,000 years ago and how they lived one procession cycle away from us, as well as the earliest Native Americans who numbered as low as 70 as they came from Asia across the Beringian land bridge to the Americas. And of course, we can't forget about the people of the Green Sahara around 10 to 5,000 years ago, and how all of these different people have been influenced by the Milankovitch cycles. But today, I'm going to begin to take you much deeper back in time. But before I do, I'm going to recap the last 100,000 years, so you can get a picture of what the climate was like and how people adapted. And as we go from 100,000 years ago to about 11,000 years ago, I'm going to stop and talk about an era known as the Younger Dryas, because that has a lot of interesting aspects surrounding it. It was a strange cooling period during a warming up of the earth. But I'm also going to talk about something that happened a little over 100,000 years ago, roughly 130 to 115,000 years ago, called the Emian Interglacial, another warming period that existed that's similar to ours. But after that, I'm going to take us back to over 1 million years ago. And I'm going to share with you how the Milankovitch cycles were even involved in some of the earliest tool-making for hominins on the planet. Now that we've really taken our time to go back about 100,000 years, and even though I've spent a lot of time painting how far away that is in time, it's sort of like reaching the top of a mountain and realizing it was only a hill. And the true mountain still lays before you, many, many times taller than what you've just climbed. It's like going into warp speed in a spaceship, where at first things speed up and things start to shift and change. But now, beginning with this episode, we're going to dip our toes into deep time in the millions, and as the book goes on, into billions of years. But before we get into it, I just want to talk a little bit about the number of 200,000 years. That's the length of time that I've said that humans have existed on Earth. And I know there's other estimates that are pretty credible that can date back to as far as 300,000 years ago. Lately, I've been seeing a lot of numbers that push further back of the origin of humanity. 
but I just want to let you know, I stay pretty consistent with 200,000 because that's a conservative estimate. But I want you as the listener to be aware that that number is not fixed by any means. And so since we're covering an entire chapter today, I know this is going to be a long one. So we can now dive into the book. Please remember that this takes a lot of time for me to put together. So if you are appreciating the work, a donation is always appreciated by me because that is giving me an understanding of how much time I can spend on producing this content. Whenever you give a donation of whatever size, I'll provide you with a free PDF copy of a work of your choice. And even if you can't afford a donation or you just like listening, you can always like, subscribe, or share with friends to just help get the word of this podcast out to other people who might be interested in all this stuff that I share. If you want updates for when new episodes come out, you can always follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world. And you can always reach out to me at no character limit at protonmail.com. Thank you to everyone who has been listening to this, so please enjoy Chapter 8, entitled Climate Shaping Human Evolution. Chapter 8, Climate Shaping Human Evolution Part 1, The Story of the Last 100,000 Years The ancient Beringians, the Clovis people, and their ancestors who first made the trek to the Americas were all subject to a changing climate just as the original members of the L3 haplogroup leaving Africa, the people of Dolni Vestonice, and the Kiffians of the Green Sahara were all subject to the same Milankovitch cycles at work. And only now, after glimpsing into each of their distant and separate lives, can we truly begin to comprehend our own fruit fly perspective on the seasons of the Milankovitch cycles. We can begin to see how the Earth's clock ticks on scales much larger than one of our lifespans. One eccentricity cycle ago, the Earth was relatively warm. The Sahara was green for longer than average, and some of the first human settlements were built not far from the Nile River at Arkin 8. But then, roughly about 80,000 years ago, or about two obliquity cycles ago, the tilt in the earth was waning, and just like today, it was autumn in the obliquity cycle. For about the next 
10,000 years, the Sahara cooled substantially and dried up. During this time, for the briefest of instants, the Toba eruption occurred, but its impact on the climate using timescales like these barely registers. Despite being the largest eruption of the last two million years, Toba's ability to impact the climate compared to an obliquity winter was paltry, and so the Earth continued to get colder and colder as the poles tilted away from the sun. And just like our tropical annual winters, the worst of the obliquity winter comes after its solstice, meaning after the Earth hits its minimum tilt of 22.1 degrees, and the poles begin tilting back into the sun. By the spring of the obliquity, about 60,000 years ago, the Earth had reached some of its coldest levels over the previous 100,000 years. It was somewhere around this time that the Sahara was a cold, dry desert, and the L3 haplogroup struggled for survival. The tilt of the Earth waxed, and the obliquity spring turned into obliquity summer reaching its maximum tilt of 24.5 degrees into the sun. Then the obliquity summer turned into obliquity autumn again about 41,000 years ago, making it exactly one obliquity cycle ago from now. But compared to 82,000 years ago, the obliquity equinox 41,000 years ago was colder, which led to an even colder obliquity winter than the previous one. Humanity was about to be dropped into the coldest obliquity winter ever experienced by our species. From about 40,000 years ago to about 15,000 years ago, until well into the most recent obliquity spring, the Earth was plunged into such a deep cold that it is often referred to as the Ice Age. It was during this obliquity winter that humanity spread to all corners of the Earth. The people of Dolni Vestonice in the modern-day Czech Republic survived in a much colder climate even as they had the same sky due to living one full procession ago, about 26,000 years ago, their position on the obliquity calendar was much different, giving them an entirely different climate experience than us today. The ancestors of the Native Americans braved the most frigid tundra on Earth, and prevailed, most likely finding their way to the American continent near the end of the last obliquity winter, when it was at its coldest, somewhere around 15,000 to 20,000 years ago.
This most recent obliquity winter changed the face of the planet between 30,000 and 15,000 years ago. Ice sheets covered the Earth that were 12,000 feet thick. This is almost as tall as five Burj Khalifas, the world's tallest building, stacked on top of each other. The ice stretched so far south from the Arctic region that the Gulf Coast of America would have had a landscape of pine forests and prairies that today are found in northern Canada. There was so much water locked up in ice that sea levels were at an all-time low, which is exactly why the land bridge of Beringia would have been easy to cross for the earliest Native Americans. Sea levels were so low it was possible to walk from Finland to the British Isles to southern France without ever touching the ground of the modern mainland European continent. The British Isles would have been merely some highlands on the northwestern edge of the continent. During the same time, the Caribbean islands from mainland South America to Cuba were nearly an unbroken chain of land, and Florida would have been over twice its size that it is today. It was even almost possible to walk from Japan to mainland Australia without needing to cross the ocean. I've shared a bunch of different images in my book to show how the landscape differed around the world than it does today. But at the same time, humans were expanding across the entire globe and would have clearly found these lowlands havens in such a cold and dry climate, leaving countless archaeological sites to be swallowed up by the warming earth over the last 15,000 years. The reason the earth started warming back up about 15,000 years ago was because it was late spring in the obliquity cycle, and temperatures began to rise again as the poles tilted more directly into the sun. This time was different than the last obliquity spring about 56,000 years ago. It was not only heading into an obliquity summer, but an eccentricity summer as well. An eccentricity summer is when the orbit of the Earth is more elliptical and therefore comes closer to the sun in the northern hemisphere's summer. In addition to the poles receiving more sunlight due to their tilt from the obliquity, the intensity of that sunlight was also greater than it had been for tens of thousands of years. It was the beginning of a double Milankovitch summer. Glacial ice sheets that had taken tens of thousands of years to form 
began to quickly recede. It was the Clovis people in the Americas who first took advantage of this late spring warmth as glaciers dug into the earth upon their retreat and filled the land with fresh glacial runoff and abundance of pure fresh water. Settlements popped up all over a landscape that used to be ice, rock, and conifers, but slowly began turning into the planet that would finally become familiar to us today. This process of warming was not a neat one, as it ebbed and flowed over the course of thousands of years. As the ice sheets melted, glacial dams burst forth, flooding the ocean and cooling the earth for hundreds of years at a time, despite the intensifying warmth of the Milankovitch cycles. The most famous cooling period of this time is called the Younger Dryas period, named for a flower that could withstand colder climates and helped identify this anomalous cooling period during the warming trend of the Milankovitch cycles. Occurring about 13,000 years ago, the Younger Dryas was a period of cold lasting only a few hundred years and was the equivalent of a cool late spring day for the Milankovitch cycles. The last throes of a winter chill in the air, even though the forecast predicts hot and sunny the following day. The mystery of the Younger Dryas cooling period is still not fully understood, but some posit that it has its origin in Earth's relationship with space. One proposal called the Younger Dryas Impact Theory claims that a catastrophic meteor impact was the cause for this sudden short-term cooling. In ice cores, lake bed samples, and dozens of Clovis archaeological sites around the world, there is evidence that something unusual happened in a very short amount of time. One of the first clues is the discovery of nanodiamonds in the archaeological record, which can only occur as a result of high-impact events instantly pulverizing carbon into minuscule diamonds. Then, there are unusually high amounts of iridium and platinum that have been found as well. And while both can be found on Earth naturally, higher amounts usually indicate an extraterrestrial origin, as both elements are far more abundant in space. Then there is also evidence of charcoal and soot, indicating massive fires across the globe. 
Some have even gone as far as to claim that the younger Dryas meteor impact has been recorded onto the massive pillars of Gobekli Tepe, one of the world's oldest archaeological structures. Gobekli Tepe is located in southeast Turkey, between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, the immortalized first agricultural center of the world. But Gobekli Tepe is so old that it actually predates the farming societies that would eventually spring up in the area and never leave again. Gobekli Tepe is the remnants of the last nomadic society that lived in the region, and it was built around 12,000 years ago. A chemical engineer at the University of Edinburgh led a study which attempted to interpret some of the ancient animal symbols on one of the pillars at Gobekli Tepe, including a vulture and a scorpion which they argued could be understood as ancient interpretations of constellations. Other symbols could be interpreted as asteroid belts that occur around the sun that the Earth regularly passes through. There have even been media reports that this study from the University at Edinburgh provides human documentation that there was a younger Dryas impact event that cooled the planet for centuries. Naturally, though, such extreme claims have their skeptics. Could the younger Dryas impact theory be just another Toba eruption theory? At first, the Toba eruption theory captured a lot of attention and was reported on by the popular media outlets, only to find out that it was not true at all. The Younger Dryas Impact Theory has similar telltale warning signs of just another attempt to read the tea leaves of our scattered and distant past and using our imagination to fill in giant gaps with only questionable evidence. The archaeologists working on Gobekli Tepe have deemed the conclusions of the Edinburgh study as far-fetched and highly unlikely that the temple was used as a site to study the stars at all let alone share mythical ideology about constellations like Scorpio over 10,000 years ago, likely before the culture that created the constellation Scorpio even existed. Even more disheartening is that pseudoscientists like Graham Hancock have latched on to the false idea that Gobekli Tepe was used for astronomical purposes and has no scientific backing or professional studies to back up his claim at all. 
It's not to say that Gablecki Tepe definitely had no connection with the sky above. It's hard-pressed to believe that such a powerful ancient structure didn't. But the archaeologists at Gobekli Tepe are clear that there is no compelling evidence indicating that it was a site of astronomical study. The archaeologists are the experts, and Graham Hancock has a profit motivation to ignore them. Our own cognitive biases can want a story that may not be there, and we're willing to forgive such a lack of evidence if someone like Graham Hancock is willing to make it compelling enough, even if there's nothing to back it up. The harder evidence on the younger Dryas impact theory lies in the collective archaeological sites around the world that have found indications aligned with a meteor impact. But even these discoveries may have other explanations. While the younger Dryas meteor impact is currently the most compelling case for the brief period of cooling during a Milankovitch spring, there is still more to discuss about it in the coming sections and chapters. For whatever the cause of the brief cooling period of the Younger Dryas, it could not stop the impending Milankovitch summer as the increased solar radiation from the eccentricity coupled with the tilted earth from the obliquity continued to melt glaciers and raise sea levels, submerging thousands of miles of archaeologically precious lowlands that had played an integral role in humanity's growing global presence. And as the procession brought itself into the right alignment for a green Sahara about 10,000 years ago, the ancient Kiphians stepped onto a grassland that had previously been desert for many thousands of years. While for tens of thousands of years, humanity dealt with an increasingly colder and drier climate, the Milankovitch summer, now in full swing, warmed the earth with obliquity, eccentricity, and procession all working together. Steadily, over the next 10,000 years, both the average global temperature along with the population of humanity began to shoot up to unforeseen levels. The Earth hadn't been as warm as it has been over the last 5,000 years since about 125,000 years ago. The Earth had officially reached an interglacial period, and we now live in the late stages of this especially warm Milankovitch summer. In this late-season switch from Milankovitch summer, about 10,000 years ago, to Milankovitch autumn, where we are today, humanity has accomplished nearly 
everything associated with civilization today. From the invention of the wheel and farming, to the building of cities and flying to space. There are questions as to why humanity seemed to flourish so much more quickly in the last 10,000 years compared to their prior 200,000-year-long existence. But humanity had not been tested quite so harshly and in so many ways as it had been during the last obliquity winter. Survival through the coldest times in human existence took constant ingenuity and adaptations on the tools, food, and shelter that had to first be discovered and then mastered over the previous 150,000 years before the most recent glaciation took effect. It may seem no surprise then that with a warmer and wetter climate that our species, which originally adapted to such a climate, would flourish again after enduring increasingly colder and harsher climates for so long. Here, we see how the Earth's movement through space has not only physically redefined the planet, but it molded and shaped our species as well. After tens of thousands of years of increasingly colder climate, the alignment of the obliquity, eccentricity, and precession finally gave us so much green space that the allure to farm was just too good to pass up for our ancestors. The nomadic hunters and gatherers that existed for nearly our entire existence were suddenly almost totally replaced by a sedentary farming population. For about the last 5,000 years, the global climate has mostly stabilized in its warm interglacial stage. But the Milankovitch cycles that aligned for us to burst forth into global dominance have now started to lose their alignment. First, the procession changed the monsoons of Africa 5,000 years ago to shift back south, drying up the Sahara once again. And now that we are within one day of the obliquity autumn equinox, the tilt of the earth is becoming less extreme, indicating it's ready for another cooldown over the next 10,000 years. Couple this with the fact that we're currently in an eccentricity winter where the northern hemisphere summer is when the earth is furthest from the sun and all signs point to the changing of the seasons once again. The earth is setting itself up for another icy plunge, according to the Milankovitch hands, on the earth clock. So at first, it may seem that the man-made global warming we're currently experiencing couldn't have come at a better time. 
If humanity depends on warm and wet climates and has fared so well during the current interglacial warming period, wouldn't we want to maintain the warmth that we have found ourselves so successful in over the last 10,000 years brought in by the alignment of the Milankovitch cycles? After all, we have manipulated the planet the world over. Wouldn't having a warm, obliquity winter be a pleasant change of pace for our species? But such an argument doesn't appreciate the time spans that the Milankovitch cycles work on. The global warming humans are causing today is akin to turning the thermostat up in a house as high as it goes on a hot autumn day and then taking a hammer and crushing it so that it can't be turned back off. In the last 25 years, humans have warmed the climate the same amount as the Milankovitch cycles have over the previous 7,000 years. Human-caused climate change is an immediate problem for our own species. And when the heat is too excessive too soon, it also may trigger ancient checks and balances the planet has put in place when temperatures begin to run away in a specific direction. For example, glacial melt could impact the global ocean current conveyor belt that plays such an intricate role on warming and cooling our planet and it may destabilize the climate even more. The problem of a destabilized climate isn't so much a problem for the Earth as it is for our sedentary, farming-focused species, who relies so strongly on the climate predictability. If we destabilize the climate so that the climate is not predictable, then our sedentary, farming-based lifestyle that we have built all of civilization up on is not likely to be able to be maintained. Like sleeping titans, a runaway climate can trigger some of Earth's responses in ways that are unanticipated by our small fruit fly brains. Within another day of the obliquity cycle, we will no longer have any ice in the Arctic. Greenland, once a massive, treacherous ice sheet fraught with danger to Peter Freuchen and the Denmark expedition, will have completely melted through, leaving the nuclear remnants of Camp Century strewn across the massive island a danger to the future generations who will need to live there. And people will need to live there, as the seas and temperatures rise to such levels that people will no longer be able to stand the temperatures of the more tropical regions. Places that have been relied upon for farming over the last 10,000 years will dry up and climate refugees will become more common. 
Our teeming billions will face a threat unlike anything we've ever experienced before. Never in the history of humanity have either of the poles ever been without ice. Just as humans needed to adapt to the frigidity of the last ice age, so too will future generations have to adapt to the extreme warmth on the planet at the same time as a mass extinction of life of which both are primarily caused by humans. If we do not address these problems immediately, then as a species, we will be forced to survive through the extremes of a warming planet that can even overpower the subtle roles of the Milankovitch cycles. If we address the problems, or, more forebodingly, if the problems we created wipe our species out, the current global warming trend may only be a mere few centuries-long blip of warming in a cooling Milankovitch winter, just as the Younger Dryas was a few centuries of cooling in a warming Milankovitch summer. The fate of the direction of the Earth is truly in our hands. Chapter 8, Part 2, The Emian Mirror Nearly all of human experience on this planet has taken place over about the last 200,000 years, which is a mere two eccentricity cycles ago. Space-induced climate change influenced our ancestors, pushing and pulling humanity in and out of Africa, profoundly shaping our collective history just behind the curtain of conditions that the Milankovitch cycles created. Feast or famine, wetlands or drylands, monsoons or glaciers, Friends or foes, the push and pull factors of the climate have always been primarily shaped by the Earth's gyrations in the silent, empty space surrounding it. The Milankovitch cycles provide reliable trends on massive timescales in the same way we can predict the average temperature of a future winter or summer. But paradoxically, the Milankovitch cycles also magnify and cancel each other out, creating unique and unpredictable changes in the climate that can still confound our collective expertise today. These deep season cycles have entirely changed the face of the earth and has repeatedly sent all life scrambling for survival. Archaeology can only tell us so much about what life was like for our ancestors on this dynamic planet. But the 
Milankovitch cycles and the core samples that confirm them are like a cheat code into understanding their world at different times. One of the most powerful impacts of the Milankovitch cycles is their ability to create ice ages much greater than what humans experienced during the last obliquity winter 15,000 to 30,000 years ago. This leads to the question of what actually is an ice age, really. Sometimes, people will use the term ice age to describe a period in which glaciers from the poles are in a period of growth freezing more water in the polar regions and lowering the sea levels. But this is more technically known as glaciation. The most recent glaciation began around 115,000 years ago and ended as recently as 11,700 years ago, right as the Earth had reached the perfect conditions for a Milankovitch summer, and warming the Earth back up. This is often referred to as the Ice Age. It is during this 100,000-year slow freeze that the L3 haplogroup nearly became extinct, and humans spread across the planet as it steadily grew colder and colder over the course of hundreds of generations. At its maximum, which would have been during the last obliquity winter, this ice age had glaciers cover roughly 30% of the Earth's surface. It's no wonder, then, that during this time, Adaptations for humans and other life forms to colder climates was likely essential in Europe, Asia, and North America. This glaciation was in full effect when the first Native Americans made their way across Beringia. The ancient Beringians had adapted to a frigid environment that had been steadily intensifying for at least 40,000 years. To the earliest Americans and Europeans embracing the colder and drier climate, it was an adjustment to an inevitability that had been occurring as far back as their collective memories went and would continue on in this way for many thousands of years to come. But this 100,000-year-long glaciation that we refer to colloquially as the Ice Age is not technically an ice age at all. What we often call the ice age, where we think of woolly mammoths, saber-toothed tigers, and the animated film franchise with the unlucky prehistoric squirrel, is actually just merely the most recent glaciation of a much larger ice age that has been going on for 
millions of years. Ice ages span unimaginable timescales over the course of many Milankovitch cycles, lasting millions of years at a time. Up until now, we've used the fruit fly's relationship to the year to compare our own relationship to the last 100,000 years, a single eccentricity year. But now it is the span of an eccentricity year that becomes the fruit fly when comparing it to the length of ice ages. An ice age is defined as the period of time where at least one permanent large ice sheet at either end of the poles has existed without melting. The ice age that the most recent glaciation fits in is called the Quaternary Period, or the Quaternary Glaciation, which began 2.58 million years ago, and still persists to this very day. Dwarfing the 115,000 years of the most recent glaciation, the Quaternary Ice Age began when the Antarctic ice sheet started to form. And even though we are living during one of the warmest times of the last 130,000 years, we are still living through the Quaternary Ice Age. When the Milankovitch cycles all aligned to begin melting the ice sheets over North America and Europe after the Younger Dryas around 11,700 years ago, this was not the end of an ice age, but merely the end of a 100,000-year-long glaciation period in the much older Quaternary Ice Age. We are still technically living through this very same 2.58 million-year-old ice age, even as we know that within a lifetime there will be no more ice in the Arctic. The Quaternary Ice Age is like a titan that can't be defeated by the mere loss of a single polar ice sheet. Its second shield of ice in the Southern Pole needs to be eliminated as well to kill it for good. Regardless of the global warming trends currently caused by humans, so long as the Antarctic ice sheet is still intact, we will still be living through the Quaternary Ice Age. The Antarctic ice sheet is more resilient than the Arctic because there is a continent frozen beneath the South Pole and ice clings to land better than it does to the salty oceans of the north. Warming periods also get a name, interglacial periods. An interglacial period is the time where there is a warming period that consists of glaciers receding and oceans rising between the glaciations. Interglacial periods rarely last as long as glaciations. 
the current interglacial that we're in right now is known as the Holocene and has lasted since the end of the last glaciation 11,700 years ago. Holocene is literally translated from Greek to mean entirely new, as it has brought us a warming earth that has not seen its likeness in over 100,000 years. And it is only during this rare, brief reprieve from the ice that we find ourselves living today. To find an interglacial period that is as warm as the one we've experienced over the last 11,700 years, we have to go back 130,000 to 115,000 years ago to a time known as the Eemian Interglacial Period. During the Eemian Interglacial, the Earth's wide eccentricity gave the planet summers that were 12 to 13% warmer than today. About 130,000 years ago, the Earth was warming dramatically after a deep cold spell just like the Earth is doing again today in the Holocene. And while we still don't know how warm our current interglacial will go, the Eemian reached temperatures around the Earth that were, on average, 30 to 40 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than they are today. The ocean levels were 10 to 20 feet higher than ours, with ice sheets at the poles substantially smaller. It was so warm that the ice sheet in western Antarctica may have collapsed. Deciduous forests filled with oak, hazel, and hornbeam trees extended much further north in Europe than they do today, and elephants with straight tusks and hippopotami were living as far north as the British Isles. It's not surprising, then, that human-caused climate change deniers will also use the Eemian to demonstrate that not only can the Earth handle a warmer climate, but that life flourished under conditions that were much warmer than they are today. But climate scientists do not find this comparison of the current Holocene warming to the Eemian a good parallel. The Eemian interglacial was primarily determined by the natural Milankovitch cycles, and while the Earth was generally warmer than it is today, it was tempered by the remnants of the last glacial period and the changing cycles of precession, obliquity, and eccentricity. As the Earth wobbled, tilted, and revolved, the Milankovitch seasons naturally changed once again, cooling the planet down and ending the Eemian interglacial around 115,000 years ago. While our modern Holocene interglacial 11,700 years ago 
began in the same way as the Emian, a product of a synergistic Milankovitch summer, our interglacial will not end in a mere 15,000 years as the Emian did. Right about now, the Milankovitch cycles would be guaranteeing the transition into the next glaciation over the next several thousand years. But human-induced greenhouse gases will instead accelerate the warming at a time that the Earth should typically begin cooling. Currently, the Earth is on track to far surpass the Emian's warmest temperatures in the course of hundreds of years, rather than the thousands it took for the Emian to reach its height. So while the Emian does not hold an exact parallel to the way our current Holocene warming is taking place, there may still yet be some connections made between these two most recent interglacial periods wedged within this much bigger Quaternary Ice Age. When the Emian first took hold 130,000 years ago, our species was not yet half the age that it is today. Since this is about 30,000 years before the earliest known shelters built at Arkin 8, these people likely did not yet build their own shelters. But we do know that they had the skills to build stone tools. Humans were largely nestled in our home continent of Africa and shared similar skills of other hominin species alive at the time, such as Neanderthals, Denisovans, and possibly Homo erectus, all of which were capable of using tools as well. But if you wanted to catch a human being in the wild 130,000 years ago, you wouldn't spend your time searching the banks of the Mediterranean or the Sahara, no matter how humid the region was. Maybe some humans had found their way to these areas, but it would be a rare or an errant sight. To find modern humans over 130,000 years ago, you would have to go much further south, through the Congo, into the countries that today are Botswana, Zimbabwe, South Africa, and Mozambique. This is humanity's oldest home, and today holds the highest population of people untouched by the L3 haplotype. The ancient humans that used to exist on these lands for over 200,000 years are most closely related to the Bushmen tribes that still live there to this day. Up until their forced confrontation with civilization, the Bushmen of Africa had lived in much the same way as humans have lived since the origin of our species. They're known for their intimate connection with the land, and have been a touchstone 
back to our human roots for the rest of us that are caught up in the trappings of civilization. Today, the Bushmen struggle with living as nomadic hunter-gatherers in a world that has embraced technology, property, modern legal systems, and explosive weapons. Travel to Humanity's Nursery today, just north of the Kalahari Desert, and you will find yourself surrounded by hot, dry savannas and salt pans. The biodiversity of this region is manifold. Ostriches, zebras, meerkats, jackals, gazelles, hyenas, wildebeests, lions, and elephants all roam the heartland of humanity. What water is delivered to this arid region draws a variety of birds, the most unique being the flamingo, as the salt pans are their only breeding location in the southern part of Africa. At first glance, it seems like an unusual location for the origin of all humanity, too hot and dry for our liking. But there are clues all around that the region had not always been so parched. The Makgadigadi salt pans appear to be a dry, endless plain of white sand and salt. But every year, with the seasonal rains, the desolate landscape comes to life with grasslands and fresh water, drawing in all life for thousands of miles around. The Sahara lies 2,500 miles north of the Makgadigadi, and yet it functions in much of the same way as the desert on the other side of the continent, albeit on a much smaller scale. The Sahara's wet and dry cycle blooms about once every 20,000 years, while the Makgadigadi blooms annually. Yet these mystical salt pans can give us insight on how the Sahara works on much larger timescales. We can see the same processes at work that the Milankovitch cycles produce on the Sahara in the Makgadigadi during its annual rains. During the wet season, life abounds in the Makgadigadi pulling in all of the species in the area who depend on this cycle for survival, a time for procreation and abundance. Then, slowly, the Makgadigadi dries up, and life is pushed away. But the Makgadigadi did not always follow this dry and wet cycle each year, because for millions of years, it was not a temporary wetland. It was instead one of the largest lakes in Africa. At its height, Makgadigadi Lake would have been the size of Michigan, and even larger than Lake Mega Chad in the north. 
And while it has existed for millions of years, it may have dried up as little as only 9,000 years ago, at the beginning of the Holocene. This means that for 3,000 years after the construction of Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, and 1,000 years after the Kifians settled into the young, humid Sahara, it was possible to see Lake Makadigadi with a permanent body of water. Having been a lake for millions of years and only drying up within the last 10,000, it's not difficult to see how quickly life can rejuvenate here. Even if today the water level returns for only part of the year, its legacy as a critical lake for South Africa is unrivaled and still a central aspect to all life in the region. The flamingos even evolved to depend on it. It was this ancient Makadigadi Lake and its nearby rivers that cradled humanity for nearly 70,000 years after we first evolved into existence roughly 200,000 years ago. But since the inception of humanity, Makadigadi Lake was slowly emptying, creating wetlands perfect for a large amount of biodiversity. Warm, wet, and full of life, the Makadigadi would have been home to many water-friendly creatures that our ancestors had to live amongst. From our genesis up until the Emian, humanity clung close to Makadigadi's warm shores, while the rest of the earth was going through a glaciation much like the one that the L3 humans experienced. And for 70,000 years, the Makadigadi provided for us, just as it had for all life for millions of years before even we came along. About 130,000 years ago, the Emian broke the glaciation that humanity had been comfortably enduring and the Earth had a major shift in global temperatures, just like what we've seen since the Younger Dryas. This change in climate also signified the beginning of several human mass migrations away from Makadigadi's wet shores. The Emian began to open up green corridors, pulling humans away from the Makadigadi shores towards the northeast to areas like Kenya, Ethiopia, as well as to the southwest towards Namibia and South Africa. The Emian was a Milankovitch summer that pushed and pulled life to new areas by the Milankovitch autumn about 110,000 years ago, the genetic diversity of humanity exploded. Over the course of roughly 20,000 years of Emian warmth, 
new genetic haplogroups began to multiply from the original Homo sapien haplogroups L0 and L1. It was a bellwether on what was to come for humanity. Human ancestors that left their homeland and never returned were biologically changed because of it. The fluidity of humanity's movement around the globe all stem back to a mini-expansion of our species during the Eemian Interglacial. The cause for this high activity in migration at this time is directly connected to the changing climate of the Eemian. While greenways opened up around Makgadigadi to different regions of Africa, the wetlands of Makgadigadi itself became drier and drier. The humans that had adapted to the wet and humid Makgadigadi now began to have their own genetic adaptations to this new climate. Evolution of these people began favoring those genes that were not as water-dependent. And even though they never left their original homeland, these people began changing in the same way the humid Saharans turned into the desert-roving Touareg that exists today. Today, the Bushmen of the Kalahari are the closest descendants of the original humans that lived along the lush and bountiful Lake Makgadigadi. The Bushmen are now well adapted to the dry climate of the Kalahari and are renowned for their ability to live in a region with such low amounts of fresh water. As the lake slowly drained and the climate dried, the lands around the ancestors of the Bushmen, who once could find water anywhere, had to learn to adapt. Understanding how to find water in the tubers of innocuous-looking plants and collecting morning dew allowed the ancestors of the Bushmen to stay in their ancestral homeland despite their environment changing so radically. These Homo sapiens adapted to be smaller when compared to the average L3 haplotype individual because it helped minimize their need for water. They began to move less, speak less, remain in the shade as much as possible during the day, and insulating themselves from the ground by sitting on grass in the shade. Activities began to occur around dawn and dusk, leaving midday as a silent homage to the conservation of water. Some of the earliest humans, known genetically as the L0 haplogroup, are most closely related to these Bushmen than anyone else on the planet. These are what the earliest Homo sapiens look like today. Those rare humans, still with the original genes that every L3 haplotype person today has lost. 
but even they have changed from their own ancient water-abundant ancestors, the original Homo sapiens. Humanity left its cradle around the Makgadigadi wetlands to go into the rest of Africa throughout the warming Emian. While little more than the remnants of stone tools have lasted over the 130,000 years since the beginning of the Emian, what humanity has done over the last 11,700 years during the Holocene warming may give us some insight into why humanity grew and branched out into new genetic lineages during this distant warming period. Even well after the Emian had ended, the average temperatures around the planet stayed warm enough for the next 20,000 years or so. The Sahara remained green for quite some time after the Emian ended, and the advent of the first human structures at Arkin 8 would definitively come in this post-Emian world. The mental energy it took for humans to finally trek out into new lands after having spent at least 70,000 years in one spot must have been due to a change as fundamental as the agricultural revolution in our current Holocene era. The hunter-gatherer lifestyle of the earliest humans around Makgadigadi was the same lifestyle that the first humans who left the region took with them and went on to populate the rest of the earth. Some form of nomadic hunting and gathering would be the primary mode of life for humanity for tens of thousands of years still to come. And while there is evidence of some form of agriculture as late as 26,000 years ago, the agricultural revolution that is the basis for all civilization today took place at exactly the same time as the Holocene interglacial around 11,700 years ago. When the Milankovitch cycles align to give us a warmer world, humanity learns to thrive in new and novel ways. It may be that the migration of people for the first time and their newly built structures, which occurred during and immediately following the Emian, was the result of a diaspora revolution. But by the time the Holocene interglacial began, humanity had already spanned out to nearly every continent on Earth. So the agricultural revolution provided a new way for humanity to flourish. Farmers from the early Holocene could learn tactics from distant places and further develop their own farming techniques. In contrast to the agricultural revolution, this earlier diaspora revolution of the Emian required early humans to learn about new environments through trial and error, 
making branching out to new climate locations the revolutionary act of the time. But the Emian and the relatively warm period that followed definitely shows the first true expansions of the human race with the spread across Africa. Only when we come to understand the Milankovitch cycles this deeply can we see that humans might be primed by these deep seasons in a way that can actually be compared to the cicadas and their 17-year cycles. While the long winters of the Milankovitch cycles tend to keep our growth as a species slow, the interglacial warming periods, which can occur over 100,000 years apart, appear to have primed us to grow in powerfully new and substantial ways. The growth of civilization under the current Holocene interglacial and the diaspora of humanity that led to a growth in genetic diversity during the Emian are distant reflections of the same species that thrived during interglacial periods. While it's true the L3 haplogroup survived and spanned the world during the glaciation of the last 100,000 years, our species first truly began this trend in and around the warm and wet period of the Emian interglacial 130,000 to 100,000 years ago. As Earth silently wobbles, tilts, and travels through space, our species seems to reliably respond to it, and we become more productive when the Earth is flooded with more solar energy. Chapter 8, Part 3, Building a Man While in our day-to-day -day life, the Milankovitch cycles seem to have no meaningful impact, when we look at them in relation to our evolution, we find their fingerprints all over everything. Even before our species ever existed, other hominins were already roaming the Earth, both inside and outside of Africa. And about 1.6 million years ago, in what is today Kenya, Homo erectus would have been found doing something unusual amongst the rocks. They wouldn't have been looking for plants to eat or animals to kill, but instead they would be looking for different types of certain rocks, chalcedony, jasper, flint, and take them into their hands to feel their weight and grip before tossing most of them back to the ground. Homo erectus had already existed for 400,000 years by this point, but 
This behavior, where they were scouring the ground for rocks, was something totally new. When we consider how much our own species has changed over the course of only half of that time, 200,000 years, then it is no wonder to see Homo erectus doing something groundbreaking after 400,000 years. These rocks that they were picking up were going to be transformed into hominins' first tools, the Aculean hand axes. When they found the right rock, they would set it up against another stone to steady it and start chipping away at it, creating that sharp egg shape that would become familiar across all hominin species. The Aculean hand axe was the first hand axe created by Homo erectus, who would then go on to carry it out of Africa into the rest of the world, in places like Europe and Asia, over a million years before Homo sapiens were even a twinkle in nature's eye. While the Aculean hand axe isn't the oldest hand axe style in the world, that honor would go to an even older species than Homo erectus called Homo habilis, with the creation of the Oldowan hand axes 2.5 million years ago. The Aculean hand axe did become the longest used hand axe. The Aculean hand axe would become the standard hand axe for nearly all hominins as it was later shared between species. Neanderthals and Homo sapiens also learned the same style hand axe from their erectus cousins as long as 200,000 years ago making the Aculean hand axe hominin's most dependable tool with 1.4 million years of staying power behind it. When Homo sapiens finally came around, they took the Aculean design and improved on it, but not before Homo erectus did it first. The alkaline salt lake Magadi in southwest Kenya, not far from the border of Tanzania, attracts the flamingos just as Magadi Gadi does over a thousand miles to the southwest. The salinity and alkalinity of the shallow lake makes it dangerously toxic for most life to depend on for survival. Although some species, like flamingos, have adapted well to it. But Magadi is an old lake, over a million years old, and has had times where the lake was so full of fresh water that it drew in fauna from all over the region. Homo erectus relied on Magadi for nearly the entire history of the lake and have built settlements that have existed alongside it for as long as the lake has been around. 
The Alorgasalai archaeological site, nestled in the Great Rift Valley, is named for one of the nearby dormant volcanoes to the north of Lake Magadi. The Alorgasalai site would have likely been located next to one of the nearby rivers that no longer flow through the area. Lake Magadi would have been known by the ancient hominins of Olorgasalai who lived at the site continuously for almost 700,000 years, with some hand axes found there dating back to as far as 1.2 million years ago, making them some of the oldest Aculean hand axes ever found. The Homo erectus who lived here would have relied heavily on Lake Magadi for the animals that were drawn to it from all directions. One excavation site found thousands of Aculean hand axes surrounding the bones of an elephant. Today, we rely on the archaic lake bed of Magadi to tell us about the climate for these Homo erectus, and it was discovered that the Milankovitch cycles were at work here as well. Even over a million years ago, the ancient hominins of Alorgasalai were living in the same Quaternary Ice Age that we are still living in today. This means that if they had the ability, they could have stood on the same ice sheet in Antarctica that we can still stand on today. The Milankovitch cycles began to have a cooling and drying effect on the region, especially around 525,000 years ago. And for the next 125,000 years, Lake Magadi gradually shrank and became more alkaline and saline, poisoning the waters for most of the life around it, similar to how it is today. Just as the Sahara would become uninhabitable at certain points during the course of the Milankovitch cycles, so too does Lake Magadi. Alorgasalai stopped being inhabited around 490,000 years ago and pushed hominins away from the lake for the first time in over 700,000 years. Many animals of the region even went extinct, particularly large grazing-type animals, unable to adjust to the changing climate happening around Magadi. Just as 20,000 years ago the Earth was a very different place than it is today, similar variability occurred around Magadi, where many species were unable to adapt to the seemingly unpredictable changes in the Milankovitch seasons. The waters of Magadi would fill up one more time, about 400,000 to 350,000 years ago, before drying once again until it became the salty, pink, deadly shallows 
that it is today. But how did Homo erectus adapt to this changing climate half a million years ago, when so many other species went extinct in the region? Clues still remain at Alorgaceli, specifically with the disappearance of the Aculean hand axes. Around 490,000 years ago, during one of the driest times in the region's history, Aculean hand axes disappear from the Alorgaceli record and instead were replaced by much smaller and sharper stone tools. These new tools required more complex steps in the tool-making process and were much lighter, making them easier to carry during a time where traveling vast distances for food and water must have been more commonplace. Archaeologists have made a connection between these changes in stone technology and the drying climate many times over the course of history. Not only did the Milankovitch cycles appear to have a hand in the switch from the Aculean hand axes to the much smaller and more complicated replacements 490,000 years ago, but as the climate continued to change over the next 150,000 years, hominin tools continued to become more complex and diverse. Known as the Middle Stone Age, the hominins around Magadi began crafting smaller and more refined tools and weapons, including projectiles for the first time. They traded with distant groups and began to use materials that even provided colors, and this was copied by other varieties of hominins right up into the Holocene era. Archaeologists believe the primary driver behind such changes is the climate. Where during this time the drying Magadi and more variable rainfall forced Homo erectus to likely travel further distances, become more complex, and even become more creative, as the earliest use of hand axe colors dates back to this turbulent time. Just as the earliest Homo sapiens would be pushed and pulled away from Lake Magadigadi, Homo erectus may have been forced to migrate across and eventually out of Africa for the same reasons hundreds of thousands of years before humans evolved in the first place. Being so deep in the past, all that remains of these ancient hominins are the shades of a lifestyle long dead, leaving archaeologists to fill in the gaps as best as they can. There must have been a disruptive time deep in the past, be it the loss of dependence on certain plants, animals, or water, 
that hominins were forced to change their annual habits. Smaller, sharper, more efficient tools would allow the hunters to travel farther and do more work to protect the tribe. These may very well have been times of scarcity for the hominins living through them, and so they were forced to adapt or die. During the Middle Stone Age, the Earth was going through much greater climate variability than it had in the last several million years. And as each century and millennia passed, the Earth was growing colder and drier. Tool developments allowed human ancestors to adapt to the harshest of climates while flourishing during more ideal times. We can't know any of the day-to-day -day details of what happened during these climate shifts, but what remains is the strong indication that when the climate changes, we adapt. It's so clear that all of the major human advancements in history have some connection to the Milankovitch cycles that it begs the question, if the climate change from the Milankovitch cycles didn't occur, might hominins have never evolved to begin with? Are modern humans the result of generations merely protecting themselves from the winds of a mercurial climate? Is it possible that the Milankovitch cycles had worked so unfavorably towards hominins that our genus was forced to adapt to such an extreme that we took our destiny into our own hands? When the climate became too cold, we made fire. When the climate became too dry, we made better tools so we could travel farther. And when the climate created difficult biomes, we changed our clothing, habits, and even interbred with other hominins. Our species has lived in spite of the cycles of the climate change, rather than succumb to its whims like countless other species had done. To really consider this relationship between our hominin ancestors and the Milankovitch cycles, it helps us to understand that the process of evolution requires change. If the climate were highly predictable, it's likely that life would be more likely to be predictable as well because we see it is the shifts in climate that drive big changes. But hominins were special, because they weren't able to adapt fast enough biologically, so they instead adapted using the environment around them to increasingly isolate themselves from the rhythms of the Earth's clock and protecting themselves, ourselves, against its changes. 
For millions of years, our ancestors turned the environment that surrounded them into tools, shelter, weapons, and warmth in an effort to survive a climate that often seemed to want them dead. It was nothing short of an epic battle to take control of our own destiny back from the forces of climate. But in our success, we can forget about the cause. It is not a matter of whether climate change will fundamentally change us. It's a matter of how it changes us. And as we release another climate genie from the bottle with our man-made global warming, we will once again be forced to change on a fundamental level. But the question still remains, how will it happen this time? Thank you for listening to this episode of No Character Limit. Every episode, the sources that I used are located in the description if you would like to check them out. In addition, please consider liking, rating, and reviewing if you enjoyed this podcast as each one goes to help further the reach of this podcast for new people to hear. Each episode requires hours in research, writing, recording, and editing. So if you feel that what you just heard is worth a donation of any size, please go to the description and follow the links for that. Each donation comes with a free PDF copy of a writing piece of your choice, no matter the size of your donation, and you get a lot of extra features with that, including a lot of the artwork and graphs and pictures, as well as the descriptions that I don't include in the podcast. If you would like updates for new episodes, you can follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world. And finally, if you have a question, comment, or even a correction, please feel free to reach out at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. Thank you again for listening.